This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life. And the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day. And I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition, or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. Dory 1, this is Fire Team Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to this week's episode number 144. We got two more episodes, including this one, for you before the year wraps up. We're going to go into a Christmas break. And we'll be back with you again on January 10th. But today's episode, let's get down to the brass tacks of this episode because this episode is one that, man, does it just touch every area of our life. So if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, I do open up about a lot of the things that I'm struggling in. Or oftentimes what I feel like I do more often is share on the other side of what I've already figured out. Well, today I'm talking with Debbie Godfrey, who is the founder of Positive Parenting. And so today I open up my life and the things that I really was struggling with to ask her live on the podcast to get help and tips on some of the things that I'm holding back on and struggling with and figuring out the right solution for. So the real question I have for you today is, have you ever had those moments where your kids' emotions are at like a level 10? Let's face it. If you're a parent and that has not been your case, I would tell you to write a book as you have the holy grail of parenting. Debbie started her blog, PositiveParenting.com, in 1994, and 30 years later, she is the leading voice on positive parenting techniques. She went to a simple class on how to be a better parent, and it revolutionized her life forever. Her kids have grown up and have kids of their own, and watching the seasons of parenting change has been a real blessing for her, which is something that we talk about in this episode. If you have ever wondered what life is like in my house and what parenting challenges I face, like I said, wait no more because I open up on all those different topics that I am facing and challenges that I'm learning to walk through on a daily basis. So if you've ever wanted me to open up my life and to get some of the, what does life really look like and what things has been really suck at, this is your episode, if that is you that you've been waiting for. So without further ado, let's get started with Debbie Godfrey. And as always, hang on to the other side, because my big takeaway is pretty big on this one. Welcome to the podcast, Debbie. Thanks for having me. This episode is going to be a little close to home because as we were hitting, before we hit record, I was talking about some parenting things that I was looking to get answers with. And you deal with positive parenting and it was like, this is a perfect timing to like get into the incubator of real world parenting problems. Yes. So pick my brain. Tell me what you've got going on. And just to let everybody know, he hasn't warned me ahead of time. So yeah, these are fresh <laughs> off the cuff. No, uh, no uh, pre thinking <laughs> going on whatsoever. Before I let the cat out of the bag of what I was thinking about, tell us a little bit about how did you find your way? Because I imagine it 
was not unicorns and rainbows showed up first and then you found positive parenting. It was probably a little bit of a darker time that allowed you to step into this more positive world that you now enter into. Yeah, absolutely. So this is flashback like 30 years ago. My kids are in their, I have three kids are in their thirties and um, I was miserable. Like I was at home mom and you know, they were screaming and yelling and fighting all the time and it was not fun. And I took a parenting class when they were six, two, and one, and it just changed my entire life. I went from being miserable and yelling at them all day to actually having fun and enjoying parenting most of the day. And after about a year of practicing the things that I had learned, I was like, oh, I'd like to teach this. This would be super fun. So I got trained and I started my business, Positive Parenting, in July of 1994. Wow. What did it look like back then to start a business in 1994? Because it's not like online, there's no Facebook pages, there's no websites. It's pretty much grassroots, local, probably at the like libraries where you held the master class of parents looking for, for help almost. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I followed what's um, the guerrilla marketing books. I don't know if you ever heard of them. They were probably way before you were born. But there was um, a couple guys that wrote these guerrilla marketing, guerrilla marketing for this, guerrilla marketing for that. And that was kind of my path. And I would I called it pounding the pavement. And you're right. I mean, I printed 3000 newsletters and I would fold them and label them. And my kids helped too, and mail those every month. And I would make 10,000 flyers or 15,000 flyers. And I would get them all pinned together to take to schools, like by classroom. And I mean, I just, I did a lot of labor back then. And, you know, luckily eventually word of mouth kind of kicked in and I was able to ease up on some of that, but um, yeah, it was a much different. And you were also in the early phases, like the idea of positive parenting, even positive like leadership hadn't even really stuck in. You were dealing with the bad parenting consequences of a bunch of hippies from the 60s and 70s trying to figure out why these kids aren't listening. The pain point (laughs) is primed. The pain point is looking for someone to jump in and be a voice to it. So it's like the market was waiting for the spark to come and then it just caught fire probably. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, it's, it's been, uh, uh, it's my life's work at this point. You know, I, I went, I went through a phase of thinking, well, when my kids grow up, I'll probably quit and do something else. And when they grew up, I was even more determined and un- and understood like how important this is. And I'm more confident because when I was raising my kids, it's like, well, I don't know. I think it works. I mean, it seems to be working for me, but it wasn't until I could see them as adults and as parents in our relationship and that I'm like, oh, wow, this super, super, I'm so glad I had this and this made a difference. And I'm much more confident in it now. Than- so in their 30s, they probably have kids as well. I have five grandchildren. Yeah. And they are. Yeah, so they have to be like, mom, what do I do? They, I mean, it's, it's, that's what, that's, what's given me so much of my confidence, you know, with this stage, because all three of them call me for parenting help. And it's like, well, I must be doing something right. If my own kids are calling me and getting, you know, will open my, my oldest daughter has taken my class twice, twice with her husband. And then my other daughter, the one who doesn't have kids yet, she's um, been a nanny and she's worked with kids forever. And she's, always calling me up and, you know, we're chit chatting and they've been my, my biggest supporters. So it's, uh, you know, it, that, that helps a lot. What I like about that story is it highlights this, uh, seasonal change in parenting that parenting, at least my early adoption of it was this thing that happened between the ages of zero and 18, but really parenting is something that just changes in the seasons, like the weather. 
And someone told me a while back that there's four C's of parenting. There's the coaching phase in the zero to 18, where they're looking for you to help lead through and train them to be proper adults. And then there's like the, I want to say it's a consultant stage where they're like looking for you to actually like solve their problems from like 18 to 23. And then I think I'm missing a stage here, maybe like a counselor stage. Maybe it was counselor and then the, uh, the consultant. But then the final stage, which you're in, which is the colleague stage, where you, like, you're realizing, comparing notes, and you're both at that level. And it's a, just a different level of parenting and maturity because you both have the seasons of what, like, yeah, it is freaking on the front lines of war sometimes when you're trying to be a parent. Right. I love that. I don't know. I don't know where you learned that, but I just sitting here, click, click, click in my little brain. It's I could see where I was all of those things, even as they were teenagers, because I think that our job is not to just raise them zero to 18 and then boom, they're out. You know, like there's a there's a transition phase, I feel, that starts early on where we need to work ourselves out of a job. And if we have maintain this super tight control to, you know, boom, the day they're 18, they go off to college, they usually fall apart. Like they, they rubber band back to your basement and they're wondering like, Hey mom, can you bring me down something? Right. <laughs> Which right. is how, you know, like something did not go right in the factory <laughs> because the, the, the product well, I mean, is not, not functional. Yeah. And it's not even like, it's not the parents intention to do that. I think many parents get so much of our value out of doing and taking yeah, the vicariously living through our kids that's one that's right. a trap especially like if you have your own mom and dad issues and you're looking for your kids to replace something that you never had like that help that never creates a healthy uh relationship because it's always codependent and it self-destructs in marriage just as much as it self-destructs within a parent and child relationship as well and a lot of parents never move out of that coaching phase there's, I mean, there's like the mother-in-law at a wedding would probably be the most common one where she's still controlling the wedding. She's still controlling her daughter. And even after they're married, she's still controlling her life. Like that coaching phase needs to have a finality end because you need to let them blossom. And we're not raising kids. We're raising adults, which is something else you highlighted. But we often don't feel like that. And we're it, society doesn't reinforce that either, I feel like. We get reinforced that it's our job to be the caretaker, which then kind of makes all the decisions. But at some point, this thing needs to be autonomous and it needs to be a Tesla that can drive itself. But most of <laughs> the time, it's still this person with the brake on the passenger seat that can push it in case of emergencies when the car gets taken over in the wrong direction. Yeah, and I think that's that's a good way. Like I like to term it instead of like that I own these kids or they're mine. I, I saw myself as a steward. Like I'm the steward of these children that I'm raising. I don't own them. God and their path does. Like they're, you know... Like this, this is something I'm ushering and I'm stewarding and there's a beginning and a middle and an end to it. And like you said, the phases, it's not that I'm never going to end being their mother, but, but definitely I, I took it as a position that I was, I, it was sacred for me, really. I mean, it, this is something like, I, I don't even, half the time I didn't feel like I deserve these kids. Like they're awesome people, you know? And, and it's like, who am I to get to have these amazing people that I'm ushering towards adulthood? And so, you know, I really took it as an honor and, and wanted to do my best. And I think that's a lot of the reason that I taught parenting all those years, because I wasn't that good at it, you know, initially and getting the tools made me much better at it. But even when I was in between, say, teaching classes, like I always taught from this idea of we teach best that which we most need to learn yes <laughs> That's my I'm life is an example this podcast exists because <laughs> i needed to be able to teach the things that i really sucked at right and i felt like that was why i was such a good teacher i was so passionate all those years when my kids were younger 
it from that vein. And, and so teaching kept me on my toes and it kept, kept me, um, doing the right things that I knew to do. And now with grandkids, I just get to hone my skills. Like I don't have any of that. Like it also comes with a light switch, which is really nice. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing about being a grandma. It's I have enormous patience that I didn't have as a parent. And so I really have a lot of compassion for my daughter and how stressful it is. Cause I remember that. I remember that. Like we got to go, we got to do this. We got to do that. And it's like, as a grandparent, it's like, we have all this time in the world. You want to fight about the car seat? I'm just going to sit here and file my nails till you're ready to go. <laughs> yeah. And there's also with, cause it sounds like within your own story, you reached, uh, you grew up within your own life and reached maturity that now you can actually hold a space of patience for your daughter to feel like just needs to open up and say like today, I didn't feel like a good mom and be mature enough to know that she's not looking for maybe even a solution. She's just looking for a safe place to say that. And at that point, then you can also lead into that positive parenting in a different way. But even just being able to create the container for like a stressful emotion, which is what you do with your kids. But as an adult, it's not something that comes natural, but I'm positive. Probably that's incorporated in your life. I can feel. Yeah. And I, and I feel like I, I feel so grateful that I'm, I, I am the way I am. Like I can see that the first two years of her having two kids, she didn't want anything to do with positive parenting. Like don't, I, she's so stressed, so underwater. And all I like, did there's was no support. way this can work in real life. Right. And you know, all I did was support by taking care of babies or caring or shopping or, you know, like cleaning things, like whatever I could do to help her. And I knew better than to judge or intervene. And, you know, and I see so many grandparents, like, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Blah, 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 blah. And it's so stressful for those poor people. They're just, they're, you know, their children trying to raise their baby, their babies. And it's just, uh, if only I would love to, I would love to get my hands on grandparents actually these days and coach them how to be (laughs) better support to their adult sons and daughters when they're parenting, because it's so stressful and you just don't have the bandwidth to to learn something in the middle of you know chaos and stress sounds like you're going to buy positivegrandparenting.com after this right is over. <laughs> i should <laughs> i'm sure the market is primed and honestly i've never heard of anybody talking about like how to be proper grandparents they might be too stubborn to fully hear it like if they're stuck in their ways but that doesn't mean that they're not out there and that there's someone just as stuck especially now that i think about it there's probably a grandma out there who's always struggled to have a relationship with their daughter or a son and is still looking for something, but hasn't been able to figure it out, but had that feeling just like a parent does. And is probably looking for that voice to articulate like, yes, I know what you feel. Here's a better way of how to invite your kids into your life. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I can't do it all. And I, <laughs> <laughs> So maybe one of your grandkids will grow up and just start like, this is how you take care of grandma. (laughs) There you go. That's what'll happen. (laughs) That it'll go from the bottom up in in that Mm -hmm. approach. Well, let's open up on some of the things that I wanted to talk about and some of the struggles that I've been having. So throughout this past year, I've been really working on growing up inside myself, calming down and working on trying to be scream free. Now there are moments where I fail and I do scream or I yell 
But within those capacity to be the calmest heartbeat in the room or the lowest heartbeat in the room, let the kids kind of just scream or cry. I've been really good at just standing in the middle of chaos and being okay with it. But then I've also been good at creating psychological safety with their crying. I don't want to tell them and shame them that crying is bad. I want them to feel they can express whatever emotion. But we kind of have this problem where we almost express way too many emotions and it's not necessarily they're learning to manage a healthy way to do it. And so I always, they always know they can cry around dad and they can have a hard day and they can open up about something. But I'm really struggling in how do you help them understand that once you've expressed it, how can you help them go to a higher area or a better place to, or even maybe prevent it? Like, because I feel like there's at some point we have to rise above the crying so that they understand. And so just from context, my oldest is nine, who's really an emotional, really strong in the feels like she feels everything really strong. Our cat died in April and we we're still dealing with the ramifications of that. Uh, my son, who's in the middle, he's seven and my youngest daughter, who's five. And my son is also very sensitive. Like last night we were having he was he brought up the cat again and he was crying about how he misses the cat and. He just gets really sad and I continue to create the safety, but I feel like there's something after creating the safety for crying that I'm missing, but I don't know what I'm missing. Yeah. I mean, there is a, I mean, the way I see it and the way I teach it in the positive parenting class is that we need to encourage children to have their feelings. And it sounds like you get a plus on that. <laughs> and when we do that, it's an, it's to me, it's opening in a, a door or a window to a child feeling seen and heard and understood. So, I love those three words. I always yeah. tell everybody my favorite teacher compliment is always saying those three words. And it usually makes me cry because they don't get those words said to them very much either. Right. And so when you, when you acknowledge a feeling, so let's say your daughter loses her cat and she's crying and she's upset and it's like, wow, I can see you're heartbroken and you know, and you're going to miss that cat and you love the cat so much. And at some point in this dialogue, when you're acknowledging feelings, and I'm not sure how you learn to do it, but those three sentences I just said are a great little start. It's at some point you'll hear or see the child visibly go, yeah. And there it'll, it'll be this, like, I'm, you see me, you get me, you understand me. And that's to me, the end point of the feelings. If you continue on after that, that's when you're slugging it out and what you're talking about. Like, oh, let's just wallow in this big mush pot of feelings forever. And it does end. I just feel like it repeats. Like it repeats. Like then we come back to the same moment and I'm walking through. And what I've also learned is I've calmed down. Like part of like tapping into my masculine energy is understanding that when my daughter was screaming, and just losing her cool on anything, whatever it might be, like just the world ending type crying. What I've really learned to be the most effective thing is just to sit and hold and like rubber back and not say a single word. And you get that moment where it's kind of like, and same thing with my son and same thing with my daughter, where she's crying hysterically on her own. I go up, I sit with her, I just hold her. I don't say a single word. She gets that point. She comes down. We can start talking about something or whatever, but it, the, the cycle repeats itself. And so I'm not sure. You could also feel free to tell me this is just what these ages look like. And once they hit this certain age, like something else kicks in in their head. And that right now they're just learning that as long as you create the feelings for them to be in their feels and keep repeating that the muscles will kick in later on for something else that I'm not sure of. Cause like, like what you learn, like I'm still in the R and D lab of these steps. So 
Like, I don't know what 15 years looking back, like, oh, that's the answer to my question. Like, that's what I feel like I'm missing. But maybe it is just this is what it looks like. And it's just repeating that process. So they know later on when life gets hard, they can bring something to me. Well, I think only you can answer that question for yourself. But you're, the, the fact that you're asking me lets me leads me to believe that there's something there. And so I would ask you, what have you noticed for yourself? If you've experienced a big emotion, you process the emotion, then what is the next step for you in terms of resolving it? Because that's what it sounds like. There's a link between feeling the feelings and being seen and heard and understood and resolve getting to a resolution or some kind of acceptance of the situation. I would say what came to my head immediately was, and I would say I've just kind of started getting good on this in the last like month and a half, letting go my attachment to what could be and what was, and maybe what I was hoping it for, like just letting it go, like as frozen would say, and letting, I don't have any control over that and moving my, my, I don't know, my feelings into a place of, yes, and there's always more coming, that this isn't the end. This is just a moment, and it's not every moment. Um, I just kind of have this groundhog's feeling like that, even especially with my son. Like, I constantly think in my head, like, at some point, he needs to be able to not man up, because I don't want him to teach him that mindset. I want him to be able to teach that you don't necessarily have to express to crying every emotion that comes to the surface. And at some point you channel those emotions, maybe that anger, and you take action on something, you do something, you focus your attention towards something. And maybe I'm just, I've been listening to too many podcasts of being an adult and I'm trying to apply it too early as well. And I'm overthinking almost everything in my life. So I'm probably also aware that I'm doing it here. I just feel like I'm in this cycle that there's something that I should be missing, like with my son even, where I should be, he should be able to expand into a higher place of like growing through his feelings where he's feeling them, but he's understanding that he's not defined by them. And maybe it's just how he's at seven and maybe because I'm sensitive, he is sensitive. And this is just what I would have looked like if I was him growing up because I didn't have that psychological safety. I didn't have a bad childhood. I just didn't have the place where I was seen, heard and understood. Yeah, I think that modeling it is going to be the best thing. So the fact that you're actually processing your own growth and development. It sounds like day by day, week by week, hour by hour, minute <laughs> by minute. Sometimes, like there's there's a lot to be said for that in the presence of children it, when it's done in such a healthy way. And for you to say, "Wow, I was feeling really upset about blah blah blah," and I felt my feelings, and then I, you know, did this and describe your action step. And I think that's a role modeling without taking that other step of saying to the kid, why don't you, you know, because that's where we lose them is in the, mm -hmm. is in the lecture is in the, you know, I'm better than or whatever. And so to be able to just process your thing in front of him and he can see, Oh, that's how dad does it. So he has an emotion and then he processes it and then he takes an action step. And then the other way would be to coach them. I mean, and that's what I'm saying. I don't think that those four C's are exclusively um, concurrent to those age groups. Eight. Yeah. I think those are, those are something that you're going to be doing all four of those all along the way when each is appropriate. And so the appropriateness of coaching would be to 
get that emotion felt and then be like, so what have you seen me do when I've, and, and I'll go just keep going back to this lost the cat. Cause it sounds like that's something that's still dragging around. It is still, and it's the first <laughs> animal we've lost as well. So like the, and we got the dog to replace them. So we thought maybe that that would kind of switch it, but um, yeah, so, there's, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of missing there. And so it's like, do you, you know, is there a grave? Did you have a funeral? Like, do you have the books about loss and losing pets and that they're up in heaven? I mean, there's a lot of process. Um, I don't have material. the books. We were all there at my, we, we took it to the farm to bury it. Um, so, I mean, it wasn't like ceremonial or anything, but they were all around me as I put them in the ground and covered them up. And um, it was all very sudden because they were at the farm when I brought the cat and saying that he passed away. So like it was very instant from the moment they found out to the moment that we put him in the ground. Uh, but yeah, like it was one of those that like my goal was just to be the calmest person in the room and let them be whatever they needed to be and uh, go in whatever direction they needed to be while I remained calm and just kind of create that safe place where I understand you're feeling something, but I'm not going to lose my control because I'm going to let you go into a direction you need to go in whatever that may be, whether it be anger or sadness or anything in between. Yeah. So, I mean, I would even have a chat with them. Like, it looks like you guys are still feeling so sad about the cat and, you know, could we, would, what would help you feel more complete um, that, you know, that, that revisiting this isn't breaking your heart. Like what if we make a little honorary thing for that, for the cat outside, you know, maybe you, make a pretend grave where you live so that they can go say, Hey, to the, you know, um, I don't know, get ideas from them. I of, love your question of what would help you make you feel complete on this. Like that has not been a thought or a question. And what I realized in the question of the, how I presented it, I literally go to where they are at the moment of stop crying. But I like that question helps me take two more steps. Because we get to the point where we're calm again. And then we just, some usually it's at bedtime, so then we, they just go to bed. But this question helps them go two more steps and then then two more steps again and two more steps. And that, that thought, like, you just gave me a whole big string that I'm going to start pulling to okay. see where it goes. Um, and I'll give you because another gonna, example that just happened last yeah, night. Well, we're we, going to lose a lot of pets over our children's lives. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's not going to be... So you got to get a better routine than this. <laughs> yes. It, three, four months is definitely far yes. beyond what I would want to repeat with. So find out what the kids, like with my kids, we, we lost a lot of pets and we always had my dad come over. My dad was very religious and he would bring the Bible over and he would read about all God loves all the little creatures. And they always had, soon as a pet died, call grandpa, get grandpa over here. Like that was their, that was their process. And that's what made it okay. And that's what, you know, what we did. And so your children, will show you the way to their completion. I love that. And there was a fresh example last night when we went to the grocery store. We needed toilet paper. That was the only thing we needed, but we were out. So it had to happen. So I had three kids. My wife was out with her friends. And we went to the grocery store. It was a fine night before we had just gotten ice cream. So I mean, like kids didn't really have any reason to be upset. But then they started fighting over who was going to carry the toilet paper. And my daughter ended up, my oldest daughter ended up carrying it. And my son just lost it, like started yelling in the store, just just going off and crying and screaming. You never let me do anything. And then as we were checking out, he was going in like, you're the worst dad ever. 
And so then we, we kept going and I didn't yell. I just kept my calm and we came home. I put him to his room and I said, this is, you're going to bed early tonight. And when, when I sat down with him right at the end of the night, we were talking about it. He was crying a little bit, but then it ended with the cat again. And it was almost like, I miss Oliver. And I was just like, how did we get here from toilet paper? And it was just this, I'm like, was this the feeling that you were really suppressing in the toilet paper incident? Like, I like, that's why I get so lost in this, these emotions with them, because sometimes we end up with the cat and sometimes we don't, but we start in different places, but we end up with the cat. And so like, am I not like, and maybe it's all because we haven't finished this cat and all these other things are the surface emotions, but showing up positively in this moment, like that seems where it's a front lines because it doesn't seem possible to try to figure out a way, but with your simple question and I can already see what's a positive way we can take two more steps after we've gotten to where we are calmly and, and succinctly that we're all right where we need to be now. Yeah. And I love the insight that both he gave you and you received and that understanding this great emotion, which is greater than carrying a thing of toilet paper yeah. <laughs> deserves, um, could be let, could be from something else. And I think that's a, a good acknowledgement of our own children, like understanding that what's presenting us right in front of us is not necessarily the, you know, the behind the scenes in their own little brains and minds. And to just give them the credence that they deserve, that they have an emotional life. I mean, I don't think we parents understand that, that our, our children do have an emotional world and that if we want to be a part of that, we have to do what you're doing, which is, you know, go with it and be with it. And I would say in that, with that particular scenario, a lot of things pop in my head. The, the workshop about sibling rivalry and sibling fighting, I mean, definitely putting them more in the same boat, anticipating things like that. If your kids, you know, the kids are always getting in those kind of things, then you, there's ways you could set yourself up ahead of time. Like now, you know, if you're going in to get one thing, all three kids need to have a job that they're approved of. Right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Or you're going to have somebody crumble in. I'm not important. You don't love me. You don't give me something to do. Then I, you know, I'm not valuable. Like the same thing always... happens with the dog. If they all don't have something to do with the dog, it's the same <laughs> hot mess. Because just two days before, my youngest daughter melted down because we go on a walk before getting on the bus. And I have this stretch of sidewalk broken into three chunks. It's all equal portions. They all take equal turns. And like they were arguing of who goes first and who goes last. And I was like, no, we're not changing it. My daughter melted down and I walked the dog during her turn. And she, uh, what did she do? She followed, but yelling along the way, all they got back. And then she didn't go on a walk the next day. But like, it happens. Those moments are real life, like parenting happening. Yeah. And, and sibling rivalry and sibling fighting is part of a, a one, one of two scenarios that I think compromises the majority of our time as parents. The power struggles are the other one. So just power struggles with the kids. And then the kids fighting are, I think, the top two complaints that parent, parents come to me with. So I'm not going to give you an easy solution to that. I'm just going to say that, like, providing teamwork, which I know you're experienced in, is going to be a, a big part of your job as a dad since you have three kids. And obviously, they're a bit competitive. There's also a lot to be said for um, what I call putting them in the same boat. So there's three kids, one thing of toilet paper. How are you guys going to work this out? 
like you just you have to you have to start to learn how to put these things into their laps and let them slug it out so that you're not the bad guy because right now you're like hero to one daughter and you know mud yeah, to the and other. I'm like world ending to one and I'm the person that makes it all better and in one minute I can be the worst person ever and the next minute daddy can we go do something or dad can we play whatever which yes I realize is part of it because I like what I used to do is I would accept permanence to what they said, but like, no, these emotions are as rising as fall as fast as keys on a piano in a note. Like it's up and it's down and it's gone. So like you attaching, or even sometimes I often call this like parenting to the curve, like being absolute isn't really a good methodology because nothing about their emotions are absolute there. You could burn down the entire day for something that was only a five second emotion that really didn't need to be managed, but you just needed you to not to react to it and just let it go. And or I don't often catch every bad emotion or bad behavior because I can't catch them all. And there's too many of them. So I, I focus on the ones I pick the ones that I feel like are going to be the ones to, to pick your battles. And it's those little micro moments where I try to teach them that like, you can't do that. That behavior is not acceptable. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the key for me and, and, a, and a lot of what I teach is keeping ourselves as parents out of the position of being judge, jury and executioner which is how we, how we've all learned and how we tend to handle kids fighting. It's like, okay, you did it, you did it. Da, 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 and we like do my micromanage this whole business. And that's what gets into the position where you are, where it's unfair and, you know, you love her more than me and all, you know, and we get stuck in the mire because now we're in the middle of this scene that is really their scene. I mean, this is, this is a, conflict between them that we need to facilitate them learning how to work these conflicts out. And so that's what the whole idea to me behind teaching them to handle their fighting is that we become more of a mediator in these things and a lot less of judge, jury and executioner so that they can learn how to handle their own fighting themselves. And I like to do this not in the middle of a fight. So like with the toilet paper thing later that evening, when everybody's calm, I go, you know, when we were in the store tonight and all three of you wanted to carry the toilet paper and then so-and-so did, and then so-and-so was upset. Talk about that. And somebody, probably the, the guy who was upset is going to go, well, yeah, and, you know, point the finger at you. And you just say, tell your sister how you felt and redirect the emotions where they belong. Like he was upset because he wanted to do it and she took it over and kind of get yourself out of this position as much as you can. And you can do that well when you're setting up the scenes that they need to work it out. When you're, you know, setting it up that the three of them are in the same boat, the three of them need to figure out how they're going to manage these things. I love that because it speaks to something I learned uh, earlier in the year that as siblings, they are each other's longest relationship they'll ever have on this earth. And in some ways, they do have to just duke it out. And they've got to learn how not to do things. They've got, And what we're also doing in those moments of being the judge, jury, and executioner, we're accepting responsibility for their problem. And that doesn't allow them to grow up through their problem, especially like in the teenage years. Every time we were to mediate something or do something, not mediate, but do something for them or solve it, they lessen their responsibility for having to solve it. So like the teenagers that don't have any responsibility or parents are always complaining, they don't do anything on their own. Well, if you accept the responsibility for every little micro problem that came into their world, their brain's just wired that eventually mom or dad will just solve this and make it go away. What's the incentive for actually me doing it? Because 
I've never been in the intense situation. You only get my sister to actually figure it out, to actually learn what I need to do from it. Right. And that that's where they, that's where they learn to be externally motivated rather than internally motivated. And so they're always looking to somebody else. And, you know, right now it's at home with the parents and then it's going to be teachers and then it's going to be bosses. And then maybe the police, like, you know, like we yeah. don't want to, that's a, that's a whole nother part of, you know, what I teach is like, how do you help your kids become internally motivated, you know, to do the things because they're the right things to do because they need to be done. Not because somebody's making me, not even because it makes somebody proud to me. Um, making parents proud is intrinsic in kids. Like kids just are born wanting to make us happy and proud. They love doing that. And I think to me, that's something that we really need to hold dear and not use it against them or towards them. Like that's something precious and that can be lost so easily when we don't acknowledge them and we don't, when we're not handling them sensitively, they, they will lose that desire to want to make us proud. And so not expecting that, but to realize that that's already there and to, and to use other means to get our goals achieved, which is, you know, some kind of semblance of decent behavior. <laughs> yeah. So let's go into another live example, the okay. bedroom. So my nine-year-old doesn't have a lot of responsibility for making sure her world looks orderly. Not even like, even just something as simple as making sure that she combs her hair and these just different things that make your life feel like it's normalized or in control. And like my wife gets upset that her room is messy, but doesn't bother my daughter that it's messy. So when it comes to these types of like common problems that like every parent has in America, what are some of your common questions when you're trying to like diagnose, like what makes a kid want to motivate to clean their room that you're looking for to know where parents might be messing up? Well, in that case, that's not a very good example because um, but it's the real example. Don't tell me it's well, not a good example. example but, but it's not a good example <laughs> of motivation um, that will lead to positive behavior because I would say 80% of kids don't care if their room is messy. Like kids can live in a dump and most of them do. And that's just, they, they're like, I can find everything. They don't seem to have a problem with it. That's not all kids. I mean, like, and I have a son who was always very neat and minimalist and he's still like that. I mean, that was how he was. And, but the rest of them, it's a big mess, right? And so if there's nothing to motivate them, like a, there's nothing intrinsically good or bad about keeping a new, neat room. It's like everybody has their own like I had a totally messy room when I was a kid. And now I, I did, too. Like to me, like I just accept it. I don't mind. I just close the door like that's something that she has to learn to grow through. And I'm not accepting responsibility for whatever has to happen in her room. But my wife eventually cracks and ends up cleaning it. Yeah. And so and so when a parent needs the room clean, it's it's not about motivating the child to want a clean room because that's never going to happen. But as a parent, if the clean, if the messy room bothers you, you can do things to encourage the child and have the child be willing to keep a clean room. And that's going to be a process for the ones like her, which is like my oldest daughter. She, she didn't naturally keep a clean room, but when it bothered me, we would do stuff. I would, when they're younger than that age, you you're willing to get in there and pick it up with them. So that's where it starts, where, you get in there and you pick it up with them. And, you know, how about if we clean up all the clothes and then we'll clean up all the red things and then we'll clean up all the whatever. And so you train them on how it looks to pick up their room. As they get older, they need to get in their own process. We had a every Saturday cleanup 
process. Everybody had to clean up their rooms and then do one family chore, like on Saturday or whatever, you know, you have a structure around it. Then there was a point when she was maybe, maybe not as young as nine, it might've been 10 or 11, um, where the, she would have a friend over and the room would just become this disaster that she could never get back again. And so I had a talk with her and I said, Brie, that's her at nine. (laughs) What? That's my daughter at nine. Okay, perfect. So I said, Brie, how, like every time you have a friend over, your room is such a disaster, you can't ever get it cleaned up again. So what what could happen? What do you think would work so that that doesn't happen? And so she thought about it and she's like, well, how about if you give me a room check? And I go, what do you mean? She goes, how about if every half an hour you come and say room check? And that means we have to clean up everything except for what we're playing with. And I'm like, okay, I'm willing to do that. That's a little bit of coaching, not too much. I don't have to be a big nag, but I have to set my clock and make sure I get in there. And that worked beautifully for a while. Like I would give them this room check and the, and the other kid playing over playing would go, what does that mean? <laughs> and my daughter goes, oh, we have to clean up everything except for what we're playing with. And so it would actually elicit her friend's help in getting the stuff cleaned up. And, you know, and she was able to manage the, what was happening when her friends were over. And so you know, it's a process. And I think if, if it's, if it, for parents that it doesn't bother, they can do like you close the door. You just don't worry about it. But if it bothers, like it bothers your wife, then, then getting in and doing stuff is possible. You can train kids to keep it at a, some semblance of reasonableness to whatever, you know, I want to say to whatever your standard is not necessarily, but to some standard that's acceptable for you. Makes perfect sense. And I can see the error in my ways, but I can also see the the path through. I want to go to a harder area. Okay. So one of the ways that I often like is a short, like cute tagline that I say in podcasts is the way I measure success for my daughters is when they turn 18 and they don't get their value and worth from likes and posts on Instagram. I'm wondering, now that you had two daughters, they've grown into mature women. Do you see different areas where you like more successfully maybe than others that like what are the good key hitters to help a woman or a girl really grow into what she can feel for herself on the inside and that she doesn't need from the outside yeah that's an easy question to answer easy one that's like my front lines hardest question as a dad how do you teach your daughters to not value what everybody else thinks of her because that's at fourth grade like that's her world right now is everybody else's opinions yeah well i think okay role modeling is going to be number one. So the woman that your wife is and how she, like, I love hearing what you just said last night. My wife was out with her friends and I had the kids. I'm like, Oh yeah, you're a good husband. They <laughs> were out at trivia night. At, uh, at the, the yeah, bunch but of teacher I mean, friends. Like, she has her own life. She has, she's of equal value in your home. Like that, that the girls don't grow up seeing um, anything that's low self-esteem from their mom, you know, and that, that you encourage that as well. I mean, I think that role modeling piece is huge. How, who we are as women is how, is what are, what shapes our daughters. And so, and who, how you treat women is also what shapes their daughters. They're going to have an expectation of a man to treat them the way that you treat your wife and the way you treat them. And so already you've set yourself, your daughters up to find a man who's open to feelings. Like it's very unlikely that your daughters will choose a dude that does not allow feelings. I'm confident this cat is cementing that they're going to find the dude that <laughs> is easily one where when they're in their fields that just cuddles them up under their arm and just sits there. Like that would be a bare minimum requirement <laughs> of what this cat has taught both all three of my kids in some way 
that when you're in your feels, the other person should just sit there and listen. Like that will be something subconsciously they look for. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's it. And so, and then the other thing about their own self-esteem, like my two daughters were very, very different people. And for me to, to guide and teach each one so differently, like I really had to adapt myself very differently for each of them. One was very different than me. So I had to expand like her horizons of finding her mentors and people in her field. Like she was an artist. I'm a mathematician. So like, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I am not prepared to understand art at all. And so, you know, got her really good support in that way. And my, my other daughter, who's much more like me, we also had a lot more conflicts because we're very alike. And so to make sure I was always, um, again, in in her case, it was finding mentors for her that on an emotional level. So it's like, you always know you can talk to, you know, so-and-so like somebody's mom that's there. She's close to her or whatever. If there's, you know, something that you don't feel comfortable talking with me, there's this person that, you know, you can connect with and, and to really honor them. I mean, they, in order for them to have esteem, they have to feel esteemed, right. In their home. Never thought of it like that, but I agree with it. Continue. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just all, and this this is true for all the qualities. So if we want them to be respectful, we have to show them respect. We have to give them respect. If we want them to be responsible, we can't teach responsibility. We have to give them responsibility, give them something to be responsible for, and then they're responsible. So you can't, most of the things you just, you can't teach them by yakking about it. You have to, you have to embody it, give it, there's, there's an action here that has to occur. You can't, you know, you just can't will it to happen. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what, like, I'm wondering if you could either sharpen this or just confirm it's the right thing. Like she'll come home off the bus and she'll say like, dad, we need bedtime talk, which is something I give all the kids before bed. We can talk about anything of the day. We can rehash a bad behavior. And it's been one that I just started doing like with my oldest like five years ago, but it's really created this safe place to talk. So she'll get off the bus and she's like, dad, tonight we need bedtime talk. And they'll often be like something that happened in the bus or in the playground. And it's something that someone said or one of her friends said something about her. And the one question I always ask her, is it true? Do you believe what they said to be true? And she'll say no. And then I'll always say, well, you get to choose what you want to be true of what other people think. And no one else can choose what you believe to be true. And what you think is always more important than what someone else's thinks. Is there any expansion to that? Or is that something I just keep repeating and saying? Because I feel like that's getting them to recognize I don't have to attach myself to other people's opinions of what. Well, I mean, I think that's super great wisdom. And and if she, if you feel like she's listening, if she is, she do you see any recognition response? Like, is she nodding her? I do, because a lot of times it's just her brother or her sister's calling her dumb. Or like early on, it started as dumb. Like, you're dumb or you're, they don't say idiot, but they say dumb. And I was like, well, are you dumb? No. Okay, well, your opinion of yourself is the most valuable one that you have. What other people say doesn't have to impact what you say. So I would say I haven't necessarily saw it sink in, but it feels right for her to separate herself from what, because she'll get really caught up in whatever, trying to overthink what someone else has said, kind of like a coworker at work, or you're worried about some gossip going around, what other people are thinking about you, like how much brain power you can focus on that. And like, I mean, fourth grade, none of the problems are real world, but to her, this is just as real to, as me losing a job. Like, so I've always tried to make sure I slow down and make it real, which is why I have the bedtime talk so that we can talk about whatever seems really real. 
But at the same time, I often don't know that, like I said, the right words to help understand like your value comes from the inside, not from what other people say about, about you around you. Yeah. So one thing kids do is they take on all of our values when they're young, this age. And then when they're teenagers, they're going to test all of that. <laughs> and, see, and what you have to do is you have to really trust the values that you instilled in your children, especially from age zero to seven, which is the most important years, the, that they will, those values live in them in a way that they'll never be able to get away from. They will test them during the teenage years. And if you trust that and you can um, allow them their testing in safe ways, they'll come back much quicker than if you fight them on it. That to say that you said you've been doing these for five years, I would say there's the next level of now you know that these have a theme and they're some kind of an emotional hurt. She's coming to you because she knows you're going to soothe that. She knows that you're going to help. Another her thing she's going to hopefully look for in a dude. What? Another thing that she'll hopefully look for in a dude. Right. But that, she's going to process it. So the next level of this is you are, she already knows probably what you're going to say and you already know what you're going to say about it. And so the next step is when she comes to you with these things, number one, I would also make sure you're doing the honoring the feeling thing first. Like, oh, that must've been very upsetting or that really hurt your feelings. And just like, re remember, just do one of those until she goes, yeah. And to make sure you have that seen, heard and understood thing. And then instead of jumping into the usual, which is what's given her comfort and instruction for these past five years, start asking leading questions. So what, what do you think I would say if I was going to tell you about this? You know, what would I coach you to do? What do you think is the right thing to say to yourself? And what you want to do is start transitioning from you imparting the wisdom to her, which you've done. And I, and I would say it probably is already living in her to her processing it or on her own. So then it becomes her own self-talk. And that way, when these things happen at school, if you start processing this in a way that she's going to, she processes it herself, she'll process it herself rather than always waiting to have to come to you to get that external information. So it's, it's asking leading questions is your job, your job. Every time you're about to say something of a, here's what you do, or why don't you? It's like, how can I ask her this in a question form? So what have you seen me do when somebody hurts my feelings? Mm, I, I, I am definitely picking up what you're putting down and I'm liking the frequency that you're broadcasting it because I'm, I'm hearing it and I can see it. And it confirms a lot of what I've already created because one of the reasons I like the bedtime talk is because I don't remember how I put it together, but I er realized early on that I needed to be there for the little things because later in life, there was going to be dad, I'm at a bad party. I need you to come pick me up. And if I didn't create psychological safety early on, she was already going to use the same earlier response that I did when she was eight for something when she's 16 and not call me or something. And so, but this is almost where I've also recognized, like, how do you leave behind like well past my years on this earth, how do you leave behind the voice of what would dad do type moments? And with being a military dad as well and having other military dads in the podcast, that's a real question. When we're gone for eight months, how do you teach your kids to think like dad when he's not there to help you through it? And so I've also disconnected it to that component of leaving your voice with inside your head, their head to help be that self coach because you're not going to be here forever, but you want them to be able to access that wisdom or 
if it's like fishing, going fishing and thinking like, what would dad do in that moment? Because that's like what I call like an anchor memory, places that they feel really connected to who you were if you are no longer here and that they can always go visit and think like, what would dad do? I absolutely love, I could, I, I'm, I'm, I'm easily learning we could go on forever. And I was just looking at the clock and I was like, no way it's already been this much time has gone by, but I've absolutely loved this. And now I got to go out and apply it. So I'm interested <laughs> that there's actually going to be a benefit here because there'll be time between when we recorded this and when it launches, and I'll be able to provide an update on the episode before I launch it of how well did it work? And I'll even be able to provide some, uh, results, hopefully, of how I applied it as well. So Debbie, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I have one question that I always ask every guest. What is a parting piece of advice that you want to make sure every dad hears from either your example, you're watching your husband grow up with your kids and or something you've learned in your life. But what is that one thing that like, you want to make sure every dad picks up on? Well, I mean, I think you've embodied it, this whole conversation, because it's very few men actually stop and listen to feelings and have the, the I, I wouldn't say they all need the patience that you have for it. <laughs> but, but, you know, just realizing your children are these little beings that have a whole world. They're not, they're not somehow less than adults. They're whole human beings and they, and they deserve our full attention when necessary. And that, you know, to make that connection at least once a day to stop and see the world hundred percent through your child's eyes and just stop and breathe with your child, like that you're actually focused and in the moment. I think we are, we're all way too busy in this world. We run around way too much doing way too many things. And there's very few moments of just stopping and being, and that's what I would say for all of the military dads listening to this is is be that dad who stops and just does nothing with your children. For I absolutely period. love that advice. And I often joke that like Corona, when it hit, it was kind of like slapping all the parents in the face and they all woke up to the slowness that life slowed down to. And it was like waking up to the day after a frat party. And you're like, <laughs> where did all these beer cans come from? Like who was had, what kind of party would been going on in here? And it was just like that hot mess feeling of like, whoa, it's messy in here. You don't think that when the party's going on, you're having the time of your life. But when you slow down, you're like, man, we got to clean this place up. It looks like a hot mess. <laughs> and like, that's what I feel like we often opened up in this episode today of how do we get the, trash, get the trash bag out and start picking up and learning positive partying behavior. And how do we enjoy life at the right speed and the right moments to not have to wake up to that, that big giant cleanup mess the next day. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Very well put. Debbie, if people want to get in touch with you and, and know more about you, where can we go to find you? Positiveparenting.com. Very easy. That's my website. Is there any socials that you prefer to be on more than any other? Um, I'm on Instagram a little trying to do more. And uh, I have a Facebook positive parenting page as well. You should outsource that to your grandkids. They probably can help you with it. I know. I would love to as soon as they're old enough. The oldest is seven. <laughs> so we're not- <laughs> Let's let's help manage grandma's Instagram and post a bunch of uh, interesting Actually, my middle daughter did set up my Instagram for me. Um, she, she's the one who called it Positive Parenting Debbie. That's what it was called. So um, I just never took it off the way she would have liked me to. <laughs> <laughs> or that she sees your full potential on Instagram coming to, yes, coming to she light. Does. 
Well, Debbie, again, thank you for your time today. This episode, I am positive, is going to bring some dads home. One, because I opened my life, and my life, I haven't really opened this area up very often. And that hopefully helps a lot of other parents get some wisdom into their areas and where they could they can grow up and calm down and represent a better version of adult to their kids as they grow up. Yeah, thank you so much for that work you do. It's fabulous, really helpful. Well, there you have it. My life in a nutshell. This is essentially the full open book on what I'm really struggling with still as a person who's been talking about it for three years, because if you're honest with yourself and as a parent, that's the only way to be is life and parenting is always going to be a challenge because we've never lived the day in the future that we're getting ready to live. As I record this, I've never lived tomorrow to know what tomorrow is going to bring from a parenting challenge. And every day your kids are older introduces new and new behaviors, which introduces new and new techniques, which intervenes and creates this mindset where you always got to be learning. Because once you figure it out, the kids keep going, even though you're like, man, just slow down, stop growing. That is not how life works, as we know. So my big takeaway is realizing that there's a shift, even at these younger ages, I was missing and helping my daughter switch from being the person she goes to answers and really switching being this person that helps guide her through to her own answer, that that ability for her to self-reflect, pull out what she thinks is the right answer based on what we've talked about over the last five years, but then help guide her and then sharpen the advice that she does give herself. Like, how can she improve on what she does find to give it? And let bedtime talk almost be like, what did you do for advice? Or what did you think dad would do? And then how could we maybe make that better? And it's still kind of a bedtime talk kind of way, like I've been talking about. But giving her the keys to the bus, as I often say for adventure, is essentially what I want to be doing differently at bedtime is giving her the keys to that conversation to help guide her to the solution and let me just be a person that helps ground her, which is still something I feel that my ability as a dad to do and hopefully will be there forever is this ability that when she's feeling weary, that I can still be that grounding force for her. But when the context of finding the right solution, that is what I feel like was something that I was missing in my own techniques. So that is my big takeaway for this episode. And I really appreciated Debbie coming on the podcast because, man, it was really good to hear some time-tested wisdom over 30 years and realizing that parenting is not about the decade you're in. The same problems we suffered in the 90s are still the problems we suffer today in 2021. The real only difference is there's actually just more noise that we got to do to cut through, whether it be iPhones, whether it be work, whether it be social media, there's more noise, but the problem still exists it can just easily get covered up with the static of life. So that is my big takeaway, guys. Have an amazing week. And again, no Fatherhood Friday, but I'll be back again with you for the final episode of the year next Monday.